Well, kind of, I, I, I really was grateful for Pastor Ryan speaking last week. I, I, I loved how, he, how he, he, he showed us corners of our own hearts where we exhibit that partiality rather than extending mercy to one another. And yet, at the end of that passage in James last week, at the end of that passage, it raised a question, didn't it, in James chapter 2, verse 13. It, it raised the question, well, let me read that verse just briefly, even as we, as, as we get started here. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Ooh. And he related that to the, the, the time in the Gospels where Jesus, Jesus told about a person who was forgiven much in mercy and yet would not forgive a small amount that somebody else owed him. And then that mercy given to him was withdrawn, and he was imprisoned until he paid back every cent. Does that mean that if you don't show mercy, you won't receive mercy? Do we, do we somehow earn mercy or keep it by what we do, being merciful ourselves? See, I raised that question from last week into this week because it, it leads right into, I think, purposely. I think James has made a, a, a strong statement there, and he's echoing something that Jesus taught, and he wants to raise a question in his listener's mind because that's where he's going next. This next chapter is really kind of the core, or this next section, this next paragraph is really the core of the book of James. It, it raises this issue about the relationship between faith and works, what I believe compared to what I do. Is being a Christian a matter of what I believe or a matter of what I do? Some combination of the two. You may have a family member a close friend, somebody you care about, who has professed faith in Christ at some point in the past. They said, yes, I believe at some point in the past. Maybe it was a long time ago. And yet since that time, and particularly now, you don't see any practice of that faith in their life. And you're wondering. You're not sure. You want to, you want to gain some assurance some confidence that they're okay with the Lord, that if something were to happen to them, if they were to die unexpectedly now, that they would be with him in heaven. That's what you want to hope. And yet, something troubles you about what you see that you're not sure about what they really believe. Is being saved more a matter of our future destiny? Or is it a present lifestyle? Let me ask it this way. When does eternal life begin? Does eternal life begin now, I heard somebody say, or does eternal life only begin when we die physically? Because eternal life, when it starts, doesn't end. But eternal life, a new life, has, has some evidence. It shows itself, right? Is the Bible consistent? Talking about what the, what I'm talking about with the kids. Is the Bible consistent about... Uh, being saved by faith, how we are saved, and not by works, or do different authors like Paul or James seem to disagree? 
That's at the core of the epistle of James. That's one of the things that caused people to be uncertain about this book. In fact, Martin Luther, no less a strong voice in the Reformation for, for salvation by what God said. God says in his word that we are saved by faith, not of works, so that nobody can boast. And Martin Luther was troubled by the book of James. In fact, he wasn't sure the book of James ought to be in the Bible. He called James a right strawy epistle. You could, it's safe to assume that Luther didn't like it. Is this, is this a contradiction? Does one part of the Bible say something different than the other part of the Bible? Or is it like the kids and their pennies? Is it two sides of the same coin? Or maybe like the penny, are James and Paul actually both seeing the same thing on each side, but with some different details, or maybe expressed in a different way? I want, we're going to start, we're going to ask the question this morning, does your faith work? Does your faith work? That's what James, James raises the question, because can this kind of faith save someone? Does your faith work? Is it effectual? Does it accomplish anything? Does, it, does your believing, your faith, does that change anything? Does it change us? We're, this is where we're going to move. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna consider, first of all, James says, don't let your faith be just words. Not just words. What you do shows what you are believing. What you do shows what you are believing. And then finally, if that's true, don't let your faith be just words because what you do shows what you are believing. Then let your faith be seen. That's, that's James' point today. We're going to start talking about what is it that we believe. We want to consider what do we believe about salvation. And then if, if we've moved through the passage rightly, I think we're going to end considering what then, what then do we do about it? All right. So join me. We want to begin in the book of James. If you're, if you're using one of the church Bibles in front of you, you'll find us on page 1012, I think. James chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 14, but first let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Lord, this is truth that was very early into your church. In the first 10 or 12 or so years, Lord, uh, you wrote these words through James to those who believed in Jesus that they might know you and walk with you more fully. Lord, would that be true even today still for us? Lord, would you, as the psalmist prayed, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, speak to us about what we must believe. Lord, would you also help us then, believing to do something about it? We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Okay, there's the question. Does that kind of faith work? And what he means by that is can that kind of faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother, for, in, for instance, for illustration, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What difference does that make? What help is that? It doesn't really do anything. So also faith by itself, it is, if it does not have works, is dead. Don't let faith be just words. Now, first of all, it's important to see what James is actually asking here. What is the question? Oftentimes the question is misunderstood that James is saying, if a person says, I have faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? That's not what James is asking. James isn't asking if a person has faith but not works. James is asking if a person says they have faith but doesn't have any works. That's what James is asking. And that, my friends, is a very different question. It's, it's about having faith or not. It's about having faith or saying one has faith. So this really is about that professing to believe. I say that I believe, but do I really? Because what I believe is shown in what I do. It always is. It's not merely a matter of, of, of what I believe about God. What I believe about anything is shown in the kinds of things that I do. We'll develop that more in a few minutes. But in terms of being just words, if a person just says but doesn't do anything, and he gives an example. The example about somebody who's poorly clothed, is lacking in food. He's not giving that example to say that if you really have faith, you will clothe and feed people. That's not his point. That's a good application. That draws out of that one of the things, certainly, that when you see a need, you should do something to meet it. If you believe that God cares for that person, if you believe that this is a person created in the image of God who is in need, if you believe, in fact, that this is a person in the church who is your brother or sister, and you see a need and you could meet it and you don't do anything about it, something wrong there. That's certainly an application. But his point is, for example, if, a, if you say, if it's just words, be warm, be filled, bless you. But you don't do anything for them to be warmer. Give them a coat. You don't do anything to, for them to be filled, to give them some food. It is just words that have not had any effect. That's his point in the illustration. He's not telling people, if you really believe, if you're really saved, you'll clothe and feed people, although clothing and feeding people is good. His point is, don't let it be just words. Faith is not just words. You know, our faith today needs to be seen. It, we need to give people a reason to ask, why do you do that? It's, it's said we don't want to merely be doing things in a manipulative way to have an agenda to try to get people to respond this way or that. We don't help somebody merely because what that might lead them to do. If I help them in this way, maybe they'll come to church. If I help them in this way, maybe they'll also join, quote, the club that I'm in, and I'll feel better about myself because other people are following me and joining in it. That's not what it's about. That's not why we help people. But if I, if I see a need, and I generally believe that God cares about that person, that, that God himself would meet that need, then I'm one that he could meet it through. Then that means that if, if I genuinely believe all of that, I'll do something about it. And that kind of faith, that belief in God, that can be seen as what people around us need to see. Why do you do that? Because Jesus says to love my neighbor and you're my neighbor. God has been so good to me, I want to share how good he is with other people. James is not saying 
that if a man has faith but doesn't have works, he's saying if a man says he has faith. For instance, what about a person who confessed faith long ago? I raised that question once before, but they show nothing about that faith in their present life. There's nothing in their life today that you would look at them and say, this is a person who believes in Jesus. This is a person who believes in God. This is a person who lives some aspects of their life in ways that are evident that they believe in God. They believe in Jesus. They honor Jesus. They worship Jesus. You don't see any of those kinds of things. That raises you to question. It's not a matter of what they said they believed a long time ago, but you can certainly fairly ask the question, what are you believing? A lot of times folks, folks will talk to me about, well, you know, I, I came forward some time ago. Well, that's wonderful, but what do you believe? Or another way to understand that is, what are you believing? The conversations to have with people are not what did they say or what did they do at some point in the past, but what are you believing? What we are believing is going to affect what we are doing. For instance, positively, 1 John chapter 5, verse 24 says, If anyone, the one who believes in me, Jesus says, will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. The one who believes in him is passed into life. Eternal life has already started. I don't think I quoted that right, however. I better turn back to it. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24. It's a great nutshell of the Gospel. It defines very clearly what is eternal life about, where, where do I get it, how can I know if I have eternal life. John, chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me, has eternal life. That's clear. That's succinct. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, has already passed. Where does eternal life begin? Eternal life begins when I believe, and already now I have entered into this new life, this thing called eternal life. In the book of Romans, Chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul has been talking about the Holy Spirit indwells those who believe in Jesus. He goes so far as to say that if a person does not have the Spirit of Christ within them, they don't belong to Christ. Every person who belongs to Jesus has the Spirit of Christ now indwelling them. That's what it is to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, according to John chapter 3. And he says in verse 11, If the Spirit which raised Christ from the dead, dwells in your mortal bodies, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Again, I, I, I convoluted the verse. I'm sorry. Let's turn there. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Just shared this verse with the, with the, with the Sunday school class this morning and still can't get it right. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now sometimes that verse is taken as a hope of future resurrection. That some point in the future the Spirit will raise your body. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think this verse is talking about something very different, though. I think this verse, in its context, is talking about the enlivening of the Spirit. This verse is talking about the Spirit giving life already now in these bodies. The same resurrection Spirit that raised up Jesus also gives us new life. 
A person who believes in Jesus is indwelled by the Spirit has new life in them. That's, that's, the, point that, that, that's the point that James is making. Faith is shown in what we do. Don't, let, don't, don't define faith downward into just being a matter of saying, I believe something. But what we believe is shown in what we're doing. And faith that is genuine in Christ is evident then in what I do because of Christ. His Spirit dwelling in me. All right. Paul, one more. Uh, first, or rather, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Another one of those, what is the Spirit doing in me verses? We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. He says we all, talking of Christians, talking of those who believe in Jesus, we are being transformed. You see, Paul's expectation, Corinthians, Romans, written by Paul, not James, Paul's expectation as well is normal Christianity is that there's something new, there's something different, there is a change, there is a transformation. What we believe is evident now in newness in life. We're going to unpack a little bit farther as we go. What, what we do shows what we believe. If that's true, James, James picks up on the same thing. He, he, he's going to give us a couple of examples, but first he makes a strong statement. And this statement is, is interesting. It's, it's, it's one of the troublesome points in this passage, so I'm going to explain a little bit here. In verse 18 and 19, someone will say, now, the question is, who is the someone? Are they objecting to James, or are they, like James, objecting to the person who has said that they have faith, but there's none of it that you see in their life? I think it's that second one. Now, the New American Standard has the quotations in a different place than the ESV, which you might have in front of you, or the um, NIV. The New American Standard actually puts all of 18 as the quotation, the thing that someone will say. I think that's right for a couple of reasons. First of all, it keeps the, the you referring to the same persons that James is talking through throughout the passage. Also, there's a weird word, as, as you see in your Bible in front of you, it just says, and I. A person will say, or someone will say, quote, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now that particular structure, and I, or and I also, is only used in these two places. Everywhere else when James is joining two things with an and, he uses a different structure. So that, that particular structure is only used in that place and I think he's doing it purposely to tie that whole quote together. The and I, or and I also. So, let's take, let's go with the, with the New American Standard. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The objection, someone else might come along and agreeing with James, say, okay, well, you say you have faith. Okay, well, show me your faith. Oh, but not by works. How else would I show you what I believe if not by something about what I do? Just by saying what I believe? You can say all kinds of things. How do I know you really believe that? And then he follows it up with, I will show you what I believe. I don't have to tell you what I believe. I'll show you what I believe by what I do because I believe. My belief, my faith, what I'm believing is evident in what I'm doing. Verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. 
Even the demons believe and tremble. That's an interesting, interesting statement there. You believe that God is one. He's just quoted Orthodox Judaism. This comes out of Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema, the, the great hear, O Israel. If there's any, if any um, doctrinal statement, if there's any code of faith in all of Israel, it is this. The Lord our God, Yahweh is his name, the Lord our God is one. He's the only There is no other God. That is the definitive statement of faith for Judaism. The Lord our God is one God. He's the only God. Okay? You believe that God is one. You believe there's only one God. And he is Yahweh. He is the Lord. That's wonderful. He says even the demons believe that. You don't believe in anything particular. The demons believe that. Are they saved? No. Just by believing that... That's not quite there. But he adds something further to this. He quotes that, that grand Jewish statement that this Jewish audience that he's writing to, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. But he says something a little bit further that's, that's very subtle. You might not catch it. He says, even the demons believe and what? It's almost, it's almost unconscious. It's, almost, it's, it's subtle. It's, 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 it's involuntary. But the demons believe and, and they shudder. They tremble. What does that mean? The demons are scared. The demons believe that God is one, that he is the only God. Lucifer, no, he's no God. Uh Uh-uh, that isn't going to work. The one they followed is not going to win. They believe in God. They fear God. And because of that, they tremble. The demons don't just believe. The demons believe and do something. What the demons believe is evident in what they do. You see what he's done there? He's a clever guy, isn't he? Slip that right in that we didn't even see it coming. Okay, let's give you a better example. What you believe is evident in what you do. I I contribute to a 401 plan. Anybody contribute to a 401 plan? You do that because you believe something. Or you at least believe that something is fairly likely. You believe that it's likely that you will live past age 65 or past your working age. And you also believe that it's likely that Social Security will not live past your age 65. Or at least it will not be sufficient to care for you in retirement years. Because of that, you willingly take some money that you could use to buy ice cream. You could use to buy a car. We could go out for lunch, all of us, on that money you you set aside. But instead, you take that money and you rat hold aside into some account. You trust it to Wall Street because you have more confidence in them than the people running Social Security. Because of what you believe, you willingly sacrifice something you could use today and put it aside because you're going to need it in the future, right? What you believe drives what you do. Now unpack that for a moment. Think about that just for a moment. What do I believe? Well, let's back it up a step. You show me what you do, I'll tell you what you believe. People used to boil this down in the old days when people had checkbooks to show me your checkbook and I'll show you what's important to you. I'll tell you what your priorities are. 
Well, the kind of things that you devote yourself to, the kind of things that you give your life to, the kind of little things maybe that you do are indicating something about what you believe. Like the demons, what are you afraid of? What concerns you that you avoid or you're taking some action against? What are you worried about? It tells you something about what you believe. What you believe is shown in what you do. If we can learn something else from the demons, I've got to ask this question just because it's there right in front of us. The demons believe and they tremble. They're fearful. What disobedience, what indulgence of self should you and I shudder at if we indeed fear the true and the living God. One of the things that's good about coming together, and one of the things that's good about sitting alone with your Bible, opening it up and say, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my mind. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your everlasting way because I need to know, Lord, because the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? None other but him. What in my life ought I to be fearful about if he indeed is Lord. If he indeed does have claim upon me, is there something that I ought to fear? You know, there are things that I don't do, partly because I don't really want to, even if I'm a little attracted to that, but partly I don't do some of those things because I don't think God would let me get away with it. Imagine I were to go into some place and some place that I'm not supposed to be, some place I'm not supposed to go, and there I bump into you. Well, wait, what are you doing there? But that's no good for me to ask because what's in your mind is what's the pastor doing here, right? It's kind of like the old joke about the, uh, about the parish priest. It's a beautiful Sunday. And so he calls in sick. He calls his deacon and said, uh, terrible, I am feeling awful today. I'm not going to be, make it to be able to make it to church. Can you do the readings and can you can, can have, the, have the church sing and we'll just have to not have the, the full mass today and, and hopefully I'll be back next week. And he, he calls in sick and then he grabs his golf course and he goes to the, his golf clubs. He goes to the next town over. And he tees off. And oh, what a shot. Excellent. The hole after hole, it goes like that. He is playing the best, the best golf of his life. And on the second to the last hole, unbelievable. A hole in one. This has never happened before. And the angels are watching this because the angels are watching this. The angels are watching and they're saying, but Lord, what are you doing? He bails on his church, and you're giving him the best golf game of his life. The Lord says, yeah. Who's he going to tell? <laughs> I believe, I believe that God loves me enough that he won't let me get away with it. I, too, sometimes believe and tremble, all right? 
You know, people around us need to see some of that. They need to see. They Show me something worth believing in. Show me something that you really believe. That's what people need to see from you. They desperately need to see from you and I something that's worth believing. So let our faith be seen. That's what James is saying. Don't just say you have faith and do not let among these Jewish people whose, whose people have lived that through their history, do not let this new faith in Christ be merely a matter of something I say that I believe. Really believe it. Really believe it in ways that because you really believe it, it will be seen. Says verse 20, can I show you? Oh, he's not nice here. You foolish person. We could downgrade that to silly. It would still be okay. You silly person. Can I show you that faith apart from works is useless? For Jewish Christians, he gives a Jewish example. Was not Abraham our father? Nobody's better than Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And they know the story well. Already they're going in their minds. I know, no, no, James. Genesis chapter 15 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15. Paul brings that out in Romans 4. Not over in Genesis chapter 22. It was in chapter 15. In fact, it says we know Abraham really believed. Didn't just say he believed, but he really believed because... God said he believed. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is a brilliant example. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed or perfected or reached its intended end. We bumped into that word already in James, by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. James knew that verse. James knew Genesis 15 was in there, and Genesis 15 does go all the way to Genesis 22. And some interesting things happen in between there. Abraham believes God in Genesis 15, and yet Abraham is not perfect. It's after Genesis 15, when he believed God, that he still has the whole Ishmael episode. When God promised him a son and he ends up, maybe, maybe, maybe we could help God get that son through my wife's servant since my wife can't bear a child. And it's after Genesis 15 that he has the episode where God comes back and said, Sarah, in your old age, you're going to father a son and it's going to be through Sarah. And the whole idea seems so silly, so ridiculous to Abraham that he laughs. Isaac's name is called Laughter. It's after Genesis 15, after Abraham believes that he again has an encounter with others where he takes, where he, 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 he goes off to, a, to another place and it's, it's the Philistines' territory. He'd done this in Egypt in the past, but it's after he believes in God and yet still he says, Why? no, 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 she's not my wife, she's my sister. Meet my sister, Sarah. Why does Abraham do that? Why does he introduce Sarah as his, as his sister instead of as his wife? Because if she's his wife, she can't be married to somebody else. And apparently, she was desirable. They wanted to marry. Even at that age, they wanted this woman. They wanted to marry her. Or they would want to. Or Abraham at least thought so. I love, if I could love nothing else about Abraham, I love the fact that Abraham himself was so convinced that his wife was so beautiful. Even at 85 or 90. 
that he was worried that other men would try to take her from him. Yeah, I love that. He must have been crazy about this woman, huh? Okay, so, he, so because if, she, if she's his wife, you're going to have to kill Abraham if, if, if you want to marry her. If she's his sister, he's the one that can give permission. The father's not around, so the brother can give permission if somebody else wants to marry, and he can just say, no, no. And they're going to have to keep sweetening Abraham if they want his permission to marry his sister, and he can keep putting them off, you see? That's why he comes up with that story. And it's partly true because she is his half-sister, apparently, and so it, or cousin, it, it kind of works. All right. But he's not trusting God to protect him, and God's got to protect him if God's going to finish this promise through Sarah and give him a son through her who will be named Isaac. So Abraham believes, but his faith is not perfect. James is not talking about your faith being perfect, your faith being flawless, your faith not making any mistake. That's not what he's calling for here. Abraham is not perfect. Don't feel like you need to be. But you get to Genesis 22, and Abraham is the son of promise. Or rather, Isaac is the son of promise. And Abraham brings Isaac to the mountains of Moriah where the temple later would be. This is all pointing towards something much bigger. This is pointing toward when God would offer his son in our place. And yet, in this moment, God has given Abraham instruction. Take your son, your only unique son, Isaac, the, the son of the promise. Take him and offer him for me on the mountains of Moriah. And three days they journey to those mountains. And Abraham is ready to do just as God said. How could he do that? First of all, you're thinking emotionally, how could he do that? This is his son. But it's bigger than that because every promise God made to him is centered in this son. It's not going to be a son. It's not going to be another son. God says specifically it's this son. So God's promise is at stake here. Hebrews 11 unpacks it for us. Hebrews 11 tells us what it was that Abraham was believing I quote it for you here. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham believes God. Abraham believes that God is a God also of resurrection. That's what Abraham is believing. So Abraham, what Abraham believes is evident in what Abraham does. And then God says at the end of it, now I know. God doesn't have him kill his son. If you haven't read that part of the story, God, God stops him, stays his hand, and in the end provides a sacrifice, a ram caught in a thicket. And a sacrifice is, is provided in Isaac's place, just like God himself would provide the Lamb of God, Jesus, to be a sacrifice in your place, in my place. And God says in that moment, when he stays Abraham's hand, he says, now I know that you fear me. It's evident. His faith has been proved. His faith has been demonstrated. Even as in the midst of the troubles of life, in James chapter 1, James says our faith is demonstrated. Our confidence, our assurance is God is demonstrated when the test and the troubles come. So it's not only in chapter three that, 2 that this theme is being raised. It was raised earlier in chapter 1, and he's just pressing it further in upon us. He gives us one more example. One more example in, uh, in, in verse 25. This is the example of Rahab. Verse 25, in the same way it was not also Rahab. Now, Rahab's a Gentile. Rahab's a non-Jewish person. Rahab, the prostitute, justified by worse when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way. It's interesting. 
Is James' point that a person is saved by believing and also by doing some good works? Apparently not. Why does James pick on Rahab here? I don't mean why does he give her an example. Why does he bother to raise up the whole ugly history that Rahab is a prostitute? Why bring that up now? That seems kind of unnecessary, doesn't it? I mean, if I was introducing you to a friend, and, I, and I, as I introduced you, I, I raised up uh, the, the, the memory of some horrible thing you had done in the past, you'd say, thanks for that, Bob. No. Oh, why does he do that here? Rahab is not saved by faith and good works. She doesn't have any. What does she do for the spies? What does she do in order to save those spies' lives? She lies. And you've wondered ever since, how is it that God's happy with that? Why is that God sanctions a lie here? Not only that, she's unfaithful. She's unfaithful to her own people. She's treasonous to her own king, the king of Jericho, when she tells his messenger, no, they're not. No, they went that away. When really they were here and they were going this away. So she not only lies, but she's unfaithful to her own people, to her own ruler, and we're supposed to be subject to our rulers. She has works. She does things, and those things are not, quote, good works, but they do evidence what she believes. Because James' point is not that you're saved by what you believe. You're saved by believing in Jesus and by doing good things. James' point is you're saved by faith, and your faith is evident in the things that you do. The things that Abraham did and the things that Rahab did. Rahab did this. She spared those spies' lives because they promised her that they would spare hers, and she believed them. That God, she believed that God was going to destroy the city, whether she helped these spies or not. She believed the God of Israel. They were all trembling in the city. She believed in him, and she believed their word that she would be spared. Now, because she believed, what did she then do? Well, when they came back, when Israel came back, they surrounded the city, they blew the trumpet, the walls fell down. They went, I know, they went around seven times. I'm shortening the story. And one section of the wall didn't fall down, right? That was where Rahab's house was. And it wasn't Rahab alone. What had she done? Rahab had gathered others in her family to be there with her. Why? Because she believed. Not because she wanted their approval. Not because they want, she wanted their agreement to feel better about the decision that she had made. She earnestly believed that the city was destined for destruction and only those who were there with her in her house where the scarlet cord was out the window, they were the only ones that would be spared. And because she believed that, she gathered people there. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that only those who believe in Jesus as their Savior, are the ones who will be spared the judgment that all of us deserve from a holy and just God. If you believe that, that that's true for you and for all the people that you know, who are you gathering to Rahab's house? Who are you gathering to? But you cannot save them, but you can invite them to a place, or you can Invite them to share your story about where mercy can be found and maybe they will believe. But like Rahab, if we do believe, I gotta tell somebody. I gotta gather others because what we believe is evident in what we do. So James concludes, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what are we gonna do? Like Abraham, in the next point of crisis, 
What will you believe? Who will you fear? How have we relied on the normal world's way of achieving something instead of trusting God? Or maybe, what sacrifice will I make because I know God's promises too is true? What lie of self-protection will I tell because I'm afraid that God won't come through and deliver me? Like Rahab, how can I help someone else to believe what I now know to be true? How can I help someone who says they believe in God, but there's nothing evident in my life? You know, years ago, I worked with a man I'll call Mr. J. And Mr. J, I may have told this story before, but Mr. J talked a lot about his religion, it seemed. I didn't know, did he really believe in Jesus, or was he like James described, somebody who says they believe? But his life overall didn't really seem to suggest faith. And I wondered... But I, I came to realize along the way that it wasn't so terribly important how I define whether he believes or not. Is he saved or not? Is he born again or not? I can't know for sure. But if he is a Christian who has believed in Christ and yet has not really grown, taken steps forward in living in that faith, what does he need to hear from me? He needs to hear about the wonderful grace and mercy of God. If he is someone who's heard about God and believes in some general view of God, but hasn't believed in Jesus as his own Savior, what does he need to hear from me? He needs to hear about the wonderful grace and mercy of God in Jesus that I've experienced and that others can too. So either way, the message basically was the same. might be framed slightly different, but it freed me from having to figure out, is he really saved or not? I could just spend our time, our conversations together talking about the wonderful grace and mercy of God toward us in Christ. I figure that was most important, what he really needed to hear. Another question you can ask, you, you believe in God. What is it that you do believe? What do you believe? Tell me about that. What do you believe in God? Because there were two men Jesus talked about that went to pray. There was a tax collector, and there was a Pharisee, a very religious person and a very unreligious person, that the Pharisee, the very religious person said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. God was not impressed. The unreligious person prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. These two people believed different things about God. They believe, one of them believed he was good enough that God was surely pleased with him. The other one knew that God could not believe with him. He needed God's mercy. And he's the one, Jesus said, that went away that day, justified, forgiven, accepted by God. How can I help someone who thinks that what a person does, being good, being a good person is what's most important to God. Well, what was it that Abraham and Rahab demonstrated? Did they demonstrate that, that what they did, being good enough, was what pleased God? Abraham wasn't good enough for years. Abraham never was, quote, good enough. But along the way, he became the friend of God as he walked with him, as he trusted him. But his works weren't perfect. Rahab's certainly were not. All that they showed was that she believed God. She trusted God. We are saved by faith alone. If 
I could boil it down to this. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It does evidence itself in what we do. Could I apply this to Jesus? Didn't Jesus say, the Son of Man must suffer and be crucified and on the third day rise from the dead? Didn't Jesus say that? Then why go to Jerusalem? Because he believed it. All of it. He believed that he must die. He believed that he must be crucified. He also believed that he would be risen. When he was dead, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. And by his faith and obedience to God, that through him God would justify many. And so Hebrews 12 interprets that. That Jesus... For the joy set before him, resurrection, and gathering many to glory with him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus himself evidenced for us what he believed concerning his Father by what he did for you and I. Let's pray. Father, we would simply ask this. That, Lord, as we believe, would you help us in our unbelief? Lord, would you strengthen our belief? Would you do that, Lord, even through your word? Would you meet us here? Would you show yourself to us in it? Lord, in this day, even tomorrow morning, Father, that then that believing you might change tomorrow morning, the day after that, how we relate ourselves to people around us for you. That something of what we believe, Father, we pray that that would leak out of us. Maybe in ways that we intentionally plan prayerfully before you. Maybe in an unexpected moment that we didn't see coming. But Father, may what we believe be evident in what we do. Father, in these offerings that we now give, in prayer requests that we now share in the midst of this offering on those same cards. Lord, we're lifting these things up because we believe that you hear. Father, giving because we believe that you will use what we would devote to you for your glory and your good. Father, would you do that? Would you take these things, would you take these sacrifices that we make because we believe, and would you use them, would you use us for your glory, for your grace toward others? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.